One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Giants at Dolphins. Kickoff Sunday, December 5th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over under 40 and a half. Game Overview by Pappy. Mike Glennon is priced at the stone minimum on DK. Saquon Barkley saw 87% of the snaps last week. The Dolphins' backfield has become a timeshare with the addition of Philip Lindsay. The Dolphins' defensive system works best against weaker passers and mobile QBs. How New York will try to win. The 4-7 and seven Giants come into Week 13 trying to transition between offensive coordinators. That's a hard switch to make this late in the season and is more a test run for next year than being able to expect anything right now. Freddie Kitchens took over play-calling duties last week, and his offense produced a lackluster 13 points against the non-scary Eagles defense. That isn't an indictment of Kitchens' offense. It's a reflection of how difficult it is to change everything Week 12. Kitchens was a capable play-caller when he was just an offensive coordinator, and he should find his footing again once he gets some of his concepts installed. This week, the G-Men draw a Dolphins team that is middling against the pass and run, 14th and 12th in DVOA respectively, and is defined by their defensive style rather than their DVOA rankings. The Dolphins play man coverage and blitz at one of the highest rates in the league. They play a high-risk, high-reward system that tends to work better against weaker QBs, especially ones that rely on their legs rather than passing accuracy. Daniel Jones is doubtful early in the week with a mysterious neck strain he apparently suffered early last week, even though he never left the game. Mike Glennon is the type of QB that will make mistakes against aggressive defenses, and the Giants would be wise to try and limit his exposure to turnovers. Freddie Kitchens is likely to understand the risks associated with allowing Glennon to cut it loose, leading to a more conservative game plan. Expect the Giants to try and establish the run, but also keep in mind that this offense is in Week 2, not Week 13, and there is a lot of uncertainty. How Miami will try to win the 5-7 and seven Dolphins are riding a four-game win streak and have entered the discussion as a bubble team for a wild-card playoff berth. Those four wins have come against the Texans, Ravens, Jets, and Panthers, and while that isn't the strongest competition, they did beat a good Ravens team and this week draw another weak opponent. The Dolphins have been playing pass-leaning balanced football on offense while allowing their defense to win games. The Dolphins' defense performs better against weaker QBs, especially ones that rely on their legs, and have held every team in their last four games under 17 points. This week, Miami gets a Giants team in transition on offense and capable of being beaten on defense. The Giants fare better against the pass, 7th in DVOA, than the run, 31st in DVOA, making them one of the clearer run funnel defenses in the league. Brian Flores hasn't always looked like a sharp coach, but he should be able to figure out that the best way to win this game is remaining balanced, while allowing his defense to get after Mike Glennon. The Giants are likely to experience confusion on offense, and confusion should get punished against a team that isn't going to sit back and let the QB figure things out. Expect the Dolphins to allow their offense to do just enough while riding their aggressive defense to victory. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a tiny 40.5 total and projects as a defensive affair between one team that is trying to figure things out offensively and another that is happy to win games on defense. The game is expected to be close, with both teams playing conservatively, which should keep this game lower scoring. The most likely game flow has the Dolphins relying on their defense to give them short fields and create turnovers. Miami should slowly pull away as the Giants struggle on offense, eventually winning a game that looks closer on the scoreboard than it was on the field.
Colts at Texans. Kickoff Sunday, December 5th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45 and a half. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86. The Colts are likely to control this game, and their preferred method of attack matches up well with the Texans' defensive weakness. The Texans are going to struggle to move the ball and will have to decide between shortening the game with an inefficient running game or being aggressive through the air and risk wearing their own defense out early. This game should move quickly as both offenses play with a plodding pace and are likely to run or throw short passes to keep the clock moving. The Texans' only chance of slowing down Jonathan Taylor is stacking the box and opening themselves up to monster runs. How Indianapolis Will Try to Win Indianapolis has taken on their smash-mouth identity over the last couple of months as Jonathan Taylor has emerged as the most dominant running back in the league and the Colts' offensive line has returned to form, pushing opposing defenses around and having success even against top-run defenses like Buffalo and Tampa Bay. The Colts' passing game has also had some success this year as Carson Wentz has rounded into form after an early-season foot and ankle injury that made his transition to a new team more difficult. The Colts' passing game is nothing elite, but the success and volume of the running game draws so much attention, rightfully so, that the passing game is often able to pop off for high-efficiency outings, especially against lower-tier competition. This week, the Colts go to Houston, where the Texans' defense has actually been respectable on the year relative to their putrid 2-9 record. It has not been great by any means, but most people think of a bottom feeder like Houston and immediately picture a terrible unit. Houston has only given up 17 points per game over the last three weeks, although it should be noted that their opponents were the Jets, the beat-up Titans in a rainstorm, and the Dolphins. All that being said, the Colts should be able to move the ball in any manner they choose. The Texans' defense is notably worse against the run than the pass, which should make things easy for the Colts in deciding how to attack as their preferred method is also the path of least resistance. This is the second matchup between these two teams, and in the first matchup, the Colts won 31-3, but it should be noted that at halftime, the Colts were only up 10-3, and Jonathan Taylor only had two carries for six yards. In the second half, Taylor had 12 carries for 139 yards and two touchdowns as the Colts dominated. Given the way Taylor and the running game has emerged since then, the approach of how they will try to win this game seems pretty clear. How Houston Will Try to Win this is going to be an extremely difficult matchup for the Texans as they will have a lot of trouble moving the football. Their running game is the least efficient in the league and faces a Colts defense that has continued its reputation as a stifling unit against the run this year. The Texans also have a passing game that is inefficient and lacks explosiveness. Some will point to Tyrod Taylor's presence, he did not play in the first game between these teams, and the use of his legs is something to consider for a higher likelihood of the Texans having success offensively, but this matchup isn't great for him either as the Colts play a zone-heavy scheme that keeps an eye on the quarterback and limits rushing lanes while having extremely fast and athletic linebackers that will be able to track him down quickly if he tries to take off. The Colts have occasionally been exploitable through the air this year, but the Texans' putrid running game will allow the Colts to divert attention towards not giving up big plays without concern for being gashed on the ground. Add it all up, and the Texans are going to struggle mightily to move the ball. Their best hope will be attacking through the air, but they haven't shown much success in that regard recently, so it is hard to see bankable production. Their best hope will likely be stacking the box against the Colts' running game early and hoping they are able to get an early score or two that baits Wentz into throwing more and making some mistakes. Likeliest Game Flow Indianapolis is very likely to control this game, as they should have great success running the ball and play at the 31st fastest situation neutral pace in the league. The Texans won't be able to rely on efficiency, 
and outscoring the Colts as a means to win, so they will need to try to shorten the game with ball control focused on running the ball, short area concepts to exploit the Colts' zone coverage scheme, and Taylor occasionally taking off to use his legs to keep the chains moving. The Texans are also unlikely to want to push the pace, as their only hope is shortening the game and hoping for positive variance with a few Wentz mistakes and lucky bounces. This makes the likeliest game flow here a very quick-moving game with the clock running and teams playing methodically snap to snap. Indianapolis should take control early and gradually pull away, ideally being able to rest JT and some other key players late in the game. Vikings at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, December 5th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 46.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Man, oh man, injuries abound on each side here. Running back Dalvin Cook, linebacker Anthony Barr, tackle Christian Derrissaw, and safety Cameron Bynum have yet to practice this week for the Vikings. Running back DeAndre Swift, linebacker Trey Flowers, cornerback Bobby Price, and linebacker Jalen Reeves-Maven have yet to practice this week for the Lions. Each defense ranks towards the bottom of the league against the run. Each defense also ranks in the bottom 10 in the league in rush attempts faced per game, Minnesota 27.8, Detroit 31.4. This game is likeliest to play to a conservative slugfest, but there are some interesting paths that could unlock hidden upside from both sides. How Minnesota will try to win. We've spoken to Minnesota's propensity to play either down or up to their opponents numerous times in this space throughout the season, which perfectly played out last week. The Vikings scored twice within the first 18 minutes of the game and proceeded to be outscored 27-12 over the remaining 42 minutes of play, with one of those scores coming from a kickoff return. Side note. I was watching that game absolutely terrified to have significant exposure to the Vikings pass game, fully knowing that was not the game script I was hoping for. If still not convinced that the Vikings might not blow out a team for the remainder of the season, look no further than the last time these two teams played, where the Vikings eked out a 1917 victory at home. In all, Minnesota has played all but one game to a single score. Last week's eight-point loss involved a missed PAT and failed two-point conversion, with even their 13-point victory over the Seahawks coming in a game where they trailed by 10 points. If this team grabs a lead, they revert to a conservative play-calling nature and the offense falls into a shell. It's a sad truth to this season as the Vikings have the offensive pieces to go toe-to-toe with the best of them. That said, they fall near league average in situation-neutral pace of play and rush pass rates while ranking in the top 10 in points scored per game, total offensive plays run per game, and total yards per game, ninth in all. The most glaring advantage the Vikings hold in this game is their net red zone scoring rate, which checks in at a best of the week 71%, as in, the Vikings are really good at scoring touchdowns once they enter the red zone, and the Lions are bad at keeping teams out of the end zone once they enter the red zone. Starting running back Dalvin Cook appears highly unlikely to play this week after suffering yet another shoulder injury in Week 12, the fifth such injury to either shoulder over his career, leaving behind a featured role that typically sees him playing 75-plus percent of the offensive snaps. Enter Alexander Madison, who handled 68 and 66% snap rates in the two previous contests Dalvin missed this season. With Amir Abdullah now at the Panthers, expect return specialist Kenny Wangu to back up Madison, likely in a 25-30% snap rate capacity. As we alluded to above, the rushing workload of Vikings running backs depends largely on game flow, while the pass game involvement has been largely influenced by opposing defensive schemes this season. The running back target rates almost double against red zone coverages for the Vikings this season, one of the more interesting and unique statistics I stumbled across when researching this game. Enter a Lions defense that plays zone coverages at one of the highest rates in the league. Interestingly enough, the last time Madison led this backfield was against the same Lions team, 
a game that saw him end with 25 carries and 7 targets. Furthering that discussion, in the two games in which Dalvin Cook missed this season, Madison saw target counts of 7 and 8. Dalvin's season high in targets currently stands at 7, twice. The pure rushing matchup yields a solid 4.25 net adjusted line yards metric against a Lions team allowing 28.3 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. Add in the increased target expectation due to the matchup and role of Madison, and we're left with a running back that carries one of the higher range of outcomes on the week. Similar to expected range of rush attempts, expected pass volume for this team depends almost entirely on game flow. The above average 37.2 pass attempts per game and 65.6 offensive plays run from scrimmage per game are inflated by the three overtime games this team has played this season. The perfect example of this fact comes from the last time these two teams played, a game in which the Vikings ran 64 total offensive plays, league average, including 34 pass attempts and 28 rush attempts. The matchup through the air is a good one, as the Lions allow the deepest per target ADOT in the league and the second highest average yards per completion. Justin Jefferson stands out as a high upside play considering team composition, highly concentrated offense, and matchup, but would likely need to get by on efficiency and touchdowns considering we don't expect the Vikings to surpass their average plays run from scrimmage here. The pass-catching core is rounded out by Adam Thielen in a moderate ADOT role, Alexander Madison, Ty Conklin in a low ADOT role, and K.J. Osborne, who hasn't seen more than four targets in the last five weeks. How Detroit will try to win Although the Lions rank in the top half of the league in overall pass rate and pace of play, they rank dead last in situation-neutral pace of play and 29th in pass rate on first and second down, with the score within seven points. This clearly indicates how Detroit would like to try to win, but they have largely been unable to continue this plan of attack due to severe talent deficiencies. We know the roots of their offensive coordinator, Anthony Lynn, lie with a power run game and deep passing, but yet again, they have largely been unable to execute due to limitations induced by their starting quarterback in Jared Goff, who has routinely finished among the league's worst downfield passers over the previous three seasons. When you then consider the dearth of talent up and down the defensive side of the roster, it becomes obvious why the Lions currently stand as the last winless team in the league. So what have the Lions been forced to do to try to win games for most of the season? Detroit ranks 11th in second half pace of play, 9th in pace of play when trailing by 7 or more points, and 3rd in second half pass rate. Currently injured lead back DeAndre Swift has played 71% or more of the offensive snaps in every game since week 4, a stretch that has seen him vault up to the running back 11 on the season. Swift picked up an AC joint sprain in week 12 and is yet to practice this week paving the way for Jamal Williams to operate as the unquestioned lead back. Expect the same 10-14 to 14 rush attempt and 6-8 to eight target ranges as Williams' likeliest range of opportunities in a matchup against a defense allowing 25.9 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. The pure rushing matchup yields an above-average 4.54 net-adjusted line yards metric, largely influenced by Minnesota's league-worst mark. Behind Williams, expect Jamar Jefferson and Godwin Egwabuke to mix in for change of pace duties. The low upside of this Lions passing game requires all of volume, broken plays, efficiency, and touchdowns in order to matter for GPP play. All of TJ Hawkinson, newcomer turned alpha Josh Reynolds, Khalif Raymond, and Amon Ross St. Brown should be reserved for MME play. There really isn't much else to say regarding this pass offense. Likeliest Game Flow It is likeliest that this game environment plays slow and conservative, with the Vikings eventually gaining control of the flow and pace. The Lions have shown they are willing to open up their offense if required. Spoiler, it's required a lot, but that doesn't typically occur until the second half, meaning we're left with a game that would require extreme outliers in order for it to develop into one ripe for fantasy production. That said, we've seen some wonky stuff this season, and I can all but guarantee nobody will be playing this game as a shootout. Just something to keep in mind.
We'll cover below the best plays on paper from the likeliest standpoint, as well as some interesting leverage angles. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Eagles at Jets. Kickoff Sunday, December 5th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45 and a half. Game Overview by Pappy. Zach Wilson impacts the entire Jets offense. Both backfields are timeshares. The Eagles' defense isn't cheap, but they're playing Zach Wilson. There isn't a lot to love for DFS in this game. How Philadelphia will try to win. The 5-7 Eagles come into this one fresh off a loss to the division rival Giants in a game they probably like to have back. The Giants weren't even sure who was going to call plays during the week and ultimately had a poor offensive performance resulting in only 13 points. The Eagles, who must have felt as if they'd found a winning formula the past month, posted a dud against the Giants' defense that hasn't been able to stop anyone on the ground, which is the exact way this Eagles team wants to attack. The Eagles have been playing fast, third in situation neutral pace, but are willing to slow way down, 21st in pace when ahead, if they are controlling the game. The Eagles want to take a lead with an up-tempo running game, then salt away the game by running out the clock in the second half. The Jets have been pathetic on defense and can be walked over on the ground, 30th in DVOA, or soared past through the air, 31st in DVOA, ranking dead last in overall DVOA by a significant margin. The Eagles should be able to attack in any manner they choose, and the manner they have been choosing is running the football. Clouding the Eagles' game plan is the possibility that Jalen Hurts sits, but he has said publicly that he intends to play. Assuming Hurts plays, expect more of the same up-tempo running game before pumping the brakes with a lead. How New York will try to win. The 3-8 Jets are amazingly worse than their record. They stunned the Titans in OT by 3, upset the Bengals in a Mike White special by 3, and knocked off the talentless Texans last week by 7. All three of their wins have come by one score, and the Jets could easily be 1-9. Robert Sala wants to win with defense and mistake-free football. The problem? His defense stinks, and his rookie QB is a turnover machine. It must be difficult in the Jets' locker room knowing that Joe Flacco, maybe even Mike White, gives them a better chance to win games, but that they are unlikely to see either without an injury to Zach Wilson. The Jets play slowly, 20th in situation neutral pace, to try and hide their deficiencies at QB. Wilson has been kept under 35 attempts in every healthy game since week one, and he has managed to throw an INT in every full game he has played. Last week, the Jets limited him to 24 attempts. Still, he tossed a pick. The Eagles can be beaten through the air, 23rd in DVOA, and are more middling against the run, 16th in DVOA. That difference shouldn't be enough to tilt the Jets away from trying to run the ball and hope something breaks their way to keep them in the game. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a moderate total of 45.5, which is being dragged down by the fact that the Jets don't set up well to score points. The Eagles have been happy to win on the ground and grind down the clock in games they control, and that game flow is the most likely outcome here. Expect Philly to have success offensively by running the ball and mixing in enough passing on key third downs before slowing things down in the second half with a lead. Cardinals at Bears. Kickoff Sunday, December 5th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over-under, 45.5. Game Overview by Pappy. Monitor the health of both starting QBs and DeAndre Hopkins. David Montgomery is mispriced for his role. Darnell Mooney gets a boost if Dalton ends up starting. James Conner is mispriced for his role. 
DeAndre Hopkins is the cheapest he's been in a long time. Weather could impact this game. How Arizona will try to win. The Cardinals have shown that they are a complete team the past few weeks, going 2-1 in games without their franchise QB or stud wide receiver. Both Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins are tentatively expected to return this week, and their availability will dictate the landscape of this game. Regardless of his offensive star's health, Cliff Kingsbury deserves a lot of credit for how good his defense has been this season. The Cardinals are a legitimate 9-2 and and should be considered a serious Super Bowl contender. The Cards play fast, ninth situation neutral pace, but that number is misleading as they play even faster in the first half, fourth in pace, before slowing way down, 31st in pace in the second half. That reflects game flow, and the Cards will stay fast in games that are close. This week, they draw a Bears team that has been middling against the run, 19th in DVOA, and the pass, 17th in DVOA. With no clear path of least resistance, the Cards should come out and play their normal brand of football designed to make defenses defend the entire field. Assuming the return of their offensive centerpieces, the Cards should go back to functioning more like we saw in the first half of the season. Expect them to come out playing fast and looking to build a lead to force the conservative Bears' hand. How Chicago will try to win. Matt Nagy's seat is on fire, as the Bears were rumored to be ready to fire him if they lost on Thanksgiving Day. While that turned out to be just a rumor, you don't hear rumors that Bill Belichick is going to lose his job. There is no question that Nagy is coaching for his career, as the 4-7 and seven Bears are technically still in the playoff hunt with this year's expanded field. Nagy appears set on starting Justin Fields when healthy, even though it's clear to everyone watching that Andy Dalton is the superior passer at this point in their respective careers. Fields' injury status is up in the air early in the week, and the way the Bears attack is largely dependent on who is under center. Fields has been held under 30 attempts in every game but one this year. He had 32, whereas Dalton has been asked to throw 38 or 39 times in both of his full starts. This is clearly a game plan adjustment being made by the coaching staff to account for the differences in play styles between QBs. Unfortunately for Nagy, his offense works much better with a capable pocket passer and he hasn't been able to adapt it to maximize Fields' abilities. That, or Fields just isn't ready to play at the NFL level. If Fields starts, expect a conservative, slow-paced game plan that revolves around trying to limit passing. If Dalton starts, expect a more open game plan where the Bears aren't as afraid to attack downfield. The Cards' D has been stingy against the pass, 3rd in DVOA, while being more middling against the run, 15th in DVOA, So no matter who starts at QB, expect the Bears to try and win on the ground first. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a middling total of 44.5 because even though Arizona's starters are projected to return, there is little reason to think the Bears will be able to do enough offensively to push the cards to a ceiling game. Throw in expected bad weather, and you have a game where the cards are going to be looking to do just enough to win and escape bad conditions against the desperate Chicago team. The most likely game flow has the cards pulling ahead early before sitting back and letting the Bears' offense make mistakes. Chargers at Bengals. Kickoff Sunday, December 5th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 50 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. The biggest injury news to keep an eye on from the Chargers is rookie starting corner Asante Samuel Jr., who missed Week 12 with his second concussion and appears headed for another absence. The Bengals have a slew of players on the injury report as of Wednesday that could significantly impact their side of this game, including center Trey Hopkins, ankle, right tackle Riley Reef, ankle, running back Chris Evans, ankle, 
and depth wide receivers Auden Tate, Calf, and Mike Thomas, illness. The Bengals rank 30th in situation-neutral pace of play and 31st in overall pace of play, while the Chargers rank 6th and 5th, respectively. The Chargers rank bottom 7 in defensive drive success rate allowed, points allowed per drive, yards allowed per drive, and plays allowed per drive. The Bengals rank top 10 in all but plays allowed per drive, where they rank 12th. How Los Angeles will try to win. The Chargers play with extreme pace, 5th fastest overall pace of play, and 6th fastest situation neutral pace of play, and elevated pass rates. 58% pass rate on 1st and 2nd down, with the score within 7 points, which ranks 5th in the league, and 3rd ranked 65% overall pass rate. Their defense is built back to front and from the outside in, designed to limit downfield passing and swarm the point of reception, top 10 in total air yards and yards after the catch allowed, a scheme that filters opponents towards the run and short to intermediate areas of the field through the air. On the offensive side of the ball, the trio of Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, and Austin Eckler account for a massive 62.5% of the total targets on the season, with Keenan checking in at 27.2%, Williams at 20.1%, and Eckler at 15.2%. That is a highly concentrated offense, my friends. Running back Austin Eckler has handled between 67 and 75% of the offensive snaps in every game since the Chargers' Week 7 bye. During that time, he has averaged 19.2 running back opportunities per game and scored seven touchdowns, including four of five games with six targets or more. Notably, the Chargers average only 22.5 rush attempts per game this season, which ranks 29th in the league. Things have gotten a little muddy behind Eckler, as both Larry Roundtree III and Justin Jackson ceded backup work to Joshua Kelly and practice squad call-up Darius Bradwell in Week 12. Expect some combination of the aforementioned four players to spell Eckler in change of pace roles. The matchup on the ground yields a well below average 3.885 net adjusted line yards metric against a pass funnel Bengals defense. Of note, the Bengals have faced the most running back targets in the league at 107 through their first 11 games. Almost 10 per game is notable to say the least. We pretty much know what we're going to get out of this Chargers pass game. Keenan Allen's 27.2% team target market share ranks top five in the league, but it also comes with a weak 8.2 ADOT and 3.7 average yards after catch value, both of which rank bottom 20% in the league. Mike Williams continues in his head-scratchingly reverted downfield role and has seen modest production since the switch from the X role he started the year with. Jalen Guyton and Josh Palmer have worked their way into a near-even split for the wide receiver three role and neither has seen more than just four targets in any game since their Week 7 bye. Jared Cook, Donald Parham, Steven Anderson, and Trey McKitty have all been involved in every game since the Week 7 bye, dampening the floor and ceiling of all parties. The Bengals rank ninth in the league in fantasy points per game allowed to opposing wide receivers, instead filtering the majority of the work through the air through tight ends and running backs over the short to intermediate middle of the field. How Cincinnati will try to win Head coach Zach Taylor has accomplished what many coaches have failed to do over the previous 10 years, a complete and successful identity shift in the span of three seasons. For all the flack this coaching staff got this offseason for not taking an offensive lineman with the fifth overall pick, they took offensive linemen with the 46th, 139th, and 190th picks, they successfully rebuilt their line from within, and the unit now ranks 8th in the league in run-blocking metrics. They rank 26th in pass-blocking metrics. Zach Taylor has proven to be one of the better game planners and game managers in the league, capable of both tailored offensive game plans and the ability to alter said plan based on the flow of the game. 
Much is made of the increased rush rates from this Bengals team this season, but the truth is they rank dead smack in the middle of the league, 16th in pass rates on first and second down with the score within seven points, with a 52% pass rate in that split. The most telling stat from this offense, the one that affects the total number of offensive plays they run per game, is their extremely slow pace of play, 30th ranked situation neutral pace of play, and 31st ranked overall pace of play, which has led to an average of only 61.4 plays per game, 24th in the league. Running back Joe Mixon has emerged as one of the league's premier red zone threats, ripping off multiple touchdowns in each of the team's previous four games, an insane stretch that has vaulted him to the overall RB3 spot on the year. His receiving role has been rather hit or miss this season, with five games of four or more targets and six games of two or fewer targets. The pure matchup is pristine against the Chargers' defense allowing the most rushing yards per game and six most fantasy points per game to opposing backfields and yields a net adjusted line yards value of 4.66. As we've seen from this offense of late, we can expect increased rush rates and emphasis on Joe Mixon in positive game scripts, but we also have to realize that a good chunk of Mixon's recent outburst has occurred late in the games against the Jets, Browns, Raiders, and Steelers. Behind Mixon, expect Samaje Pirine and either Chris Evans, Ankle, or Travion Williams to mix in for modest change of pace duties. Jamar Chase, 13.3 ADOT, elite 7.5 yards after catch per reception, is the unquestioned alpha on this pass offense, routinely seeing the most snaps and targets. He is joined on the perimeter by T. Higgins, 11.5 ADOT, gross 3.3 yards after catch per reception, and in the slot by Tyler Boyd, modest 7.0 ADOT, above average 5.0 yards after catch per reception. Tight ends CJ Uzama and Drew Sample round out the pass catching core and have each worked their way into a near even timeshare at the position. The matchup against the prevent nature of the Chargers defense tilts expected pass game production to the short to intermediate middle of the field, a slight boost to Tyler Boyd and the tight ends. The low overall volume from this offense through their slow pace of play and recent positive game scripts have led to quarterback Joe Burrow attempting only 31.3 pass attempts per game this season, and we should expect Taylor to design an offense to best be able to take advantage of an opponent's weaknesses, which, for this week, leads to an expected rush-heavy approach once more. Likeliest Game Flow The end-of-day flow of this game has one of the wider range of outcomes of the entire slate, but it seems likely the field will adopt some level of certainty as how this game will pan out. Here's what we know to be true. 1. We know the Chargers have struggled to get off the field on defense, surrounding bottom 10 marks in most defensive drive metrics. Two. We know the Bengals are likely to tailor the offense to their opponent. 3. We know the Chargers are likely to see some level of success of their own, primarily through Austin Eckler and Keenan Allen. 4. We know the Chargers are likely to push the pace, while the Bengals are likely to try and slow the game down. 5. We know the Bengals are more than capable of opening their offense through the air if required. 6. We know both of these defenses possess the talent and scheme to pull, where did that come from, games, seemingly out of nowhere. All of that to say, The likeliest game flow involves the Bengals controlling the flow, pace, and environment overall, but we are left with clear paths to both a shootout through the air or a field position battle slugfest. When we then consider the fact that the field is likeliest to play this game rather straight up, meaning the primary focus will be built around the likeliest game flow, there are definite leverage angles to be had from this one. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Buccaneers at the Falcons kick off Sunday, December 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 50.5.
Game Overview by Hilo. Antonio Brown will miss the next three games for the Bucks. The only injury news of note from the Falcons is defensive lineman Jonathan Bullard, who is yet to practice this week with an ankle injury. These two teams combined for 73 total points the last time they played back in Week 2. The Bucks rank first in the league in points per game at 31.5, while the Falcons rank 27th at only 18.1. Tampa Bay stands as the league's third most efficient offense, while Atlanta finds themselves down at 26th in the league. This game holds the fastest combined pace of play on the slate. How Tampa Bay will try to win The Buccaneers have been highly consistent throughout the season with how they've approached games, with inflated pass rates, highest in the league throughout the whole season at 66%, 64% over the previous four weeks and a fast pace of play, fifth fastest situation neutral pace of play, and fastest pace of play in the first half of games. We also know this team will treat every snap as their final rep before the postseason, meaning we can typically expect them to remain aggressive deep into games. All of that comes together to create a team ripe for fantasy production. Tampa Bay has also worked its way up into the top five in most offensive drive metrics, including points per drive, first, drive success rate, third, and yards per drive, fifth. Finally, the motivation factor is also at an all-time high, as the Buccaneers currently sit one game behind the Cardinals for the only playoff bye out of the NFC. Although this backfield should be considered a loose timeshare, Leonard Fournette has shown to be more than simply a lead back on multiple occasions this season. Here's what we know. Fournette typically sees typical lead-back duties, with a snap rate around 60-65% to 65% on a standard week. Giovanni Bernard generally operates as the obvious passing down back, and Ronald Jones II typically operates in a strict change-of-pace role. That said, Fournette has two games this season where his snap rate jumped all the way up to 80% plus, including last week's contest, which stands as his only game all season with more than 100 yards rushing, and only his second game of multiple touchdowns. His 100 yards rushing, 8 targets, and 4 total touchdowns last week came on only 25 running back opportunities in the highest scoring game of the season for the Bucks since the last time they played the Falcons back in Week 2. Expect 18 to 22 running back opportunities to serve as the normal range of opportunities for Fournette here, with a handful of opportunities left behind for each of Bernard and Jones. The matchup on the ground yields an elite 4.785 net adjusted line yards metric on the backs of Tampa Bay's top-ranked marks against a Falcons team, allowing 27.0 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. Antonio Brown will remain away from the team for the coming three contests after being discovered to have falsified his immunization record. So we get more time of Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Rob Gronkowski, and Tyler Johnson as the primary pass catchers. Notably, Rob Gronkowski worked his way back up to an 82% snap rate last week after playing on only 59% in Week 11. Also, Scotty Miller returned to the lineup last week, but played only 6% of the offensive snaps in his first game back from an extended absence. Atlanta's complex defensive scheme has performed better of late, now forcing the fifth shallowest average depth of target, moderate yards after the catch, and moderate air yards. For all the good, Atlanta has allowed 15 receiving touchdowns to opposing wide receivers, another four to tight ends, and two through the air to opposing backfields. 
Expect Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, and Rob Gronkowski to operate in near every down roles, with Fournette and Tyler Johnson filling 60-65% to snap rate roles in an offense that operates from elevated 11 personnel. How Atlanta will try to win. The Falcons have, finally, again, worked through how to be successful on offense with the offensive personnel available to them, a task that has been a moving target all season due to both injuries and personal decisions. Currently, Kyle Pitts, Tajay Sharp, and Russell Gage are the only players that play over 75% of the offensive snaps in a standard week, with Corderell Patterson, Mike Davis, and Alameda Zacchaeus typically in for 50-55% to of the offensive snaps. That said, this is still an offense averaging only 18.1 points per game on the season. Finally, although the Falcons have played better on defense of late, it is highly likely this coaching staff realizes that their best chance of success is to actively try and score more points than the Bucks, as opposed to slowing the game down to try and keep the ball away from Tom Brady and the Bucks. With that, we should expect both sides to harbor a game environment ripe for fantasy production. Mike Davis, LOL, and Corderell Patterson continue to operate in a strict timeshare when both are healthy. That typically translates to 9 to 11 running back opportunities for Davis and 15 to 19 for Patterson, who is clearly the superior offensive weapon, more than simply a running back. The matchup on the ground is one of the more difficult the Falcons have seen all season, yielding a silly 3.845 net adjusted line yard metric against a Tampa Bay team allowing only 22.7 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. They have faced only 177 rushes against this season and moderate 89 targets against two opposing backfields. Mike Davis remains entirely out of consideration, while Patterson will have to get by on extreme efficiency and trips to the end zone for any fantasy utility. The passing game for the Falcons runs primarily through Kyle Pitts and Corderell Patterson, and this offense as a whole lacks playmakers outside of those two. Russell Gage operates primarily from the slot in a low upside role, 7.0 ADOT, 3.8 average yards after the catch, while Tajay Sharp, 9.1 ADOT, 3.1 YAK, and Alameda Zacchaeus, 8.5 ADOT, 3.0 YAK, combine short area work and low upside routes with lower volume. Last notable point is the fact that Kyle Pitts has struggled to adjust to the additional defensive attention he has seen over the previous five weeks, with no game over a meager 10.0 fantasy points during that time. Likeliest Game Flow Tampa Bay should dominate this game from start to finish on both sides of the ball. Furthermore, it's difficult to see a Falcons offense generate much success both on the ground and through the air against a Bucks defense rounding into form. We should expect this game to play fast throughout, as the Bucks rank 5th in situation-neutral pace of play, while the Falcons rank 7th, providing us with a game environment that plays fast throughout, as opposed to relying on one side or the other to kickstart things. So while we can't expect Tampa to control the flow of this game, we can also expect a blistering pace and environment ripe for fantasy production throughout, particularly considering Tampa's ideology of not taking a snap off. That entire discussion was had to highlight the fact that this game is a plus game environment for the Bucks, regardless of what happens on the scoreboard. The Washington football team at the Raiders kick off Sunday, December 5th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 49.5. Game Overview by Hilo Darren Waller appears unlikely to play this week, currently listed as week-to-week with his knee injury, 
opening the door for Foster Moreau to operate as the de facto lead tight end. Also, keep an eye on the status of Deshaun Jackson, who started the week with a limited showing before being downgraded to DNP on Thursday. For Washington, safety Landon Collins, foot, depth corner Benjamin St. Just, concussion, center Tyler Larson, knee, guard Wes Schweitzer, ankle, and running back J.D. McKissick, concussion slash neck, all missed Wednesday's practice and should be considered questionable for Week 13. Washington's heavy dime defensive packages and hefty reliance on zone principles have left significant gaps in coverage to the deep perimeter and shallow interior of the defense, which lines up rather well with the areas of the field the Raiders should be looking to attack here. How Washington will try to win I started my probe into this side of the game trying to dissect Washington's defense, and more specifically, why they have struggled so much this year. Washington moved away from man-heavy coverage principles seen in 2020 to heavy zone utilization this year, primarily playing from 4-3-4, 4-2-5, and 4-2-4 defensive alignments, heavy dime utilization. The defense hasn't allowed many yards after the catch, second fewest in the league through 12 weeks, which lines up with what we should expect from a heavy zone defense, but they have allowed the third most air yards on league average pass attempts against, and only 11 games played, and the ninth deepest average depth of target, 8.4. There are consistent gaps in their defense arising from the ninth highest blitz rate, but 12th lowest hurry rate and 11th lowest pressure rate. As in, they blitz a lot, but don't hit home at a high rate. On offense, Washington has been a more conservative unit than we thought coming into the season after the abrupt hip injury sustained by Ryan Fitzpatrick to start the year. Basically, they are highly reliant on opponent success as far as aggression goes. They are more comfortable adopting a conservative offensive approach built around the running backs and short passing game. Keep an eye on the status of J.D. McKissick heading into the weekend, who sustained a scary-looking head-neck injury, which was eventually labeled as just a concussion. His typical 40-60% to snap rate would likely fall primarily onto Antonio Gibson's shoulders, likely spelled sparingly by Jarrett Peterson and whichever practice squad back they elect to call up. We've been waiting to see the increased pass game usage from Gibson all season, which finally came to fruition in Week 12. Better yet, half of his seven targets came through design plays to him through the air, which means we can be fairly confident what we saw was not just a fluke. The pure rushing matchup should be considered a plus against a run-funnel defense, yielding a 4.28 net-adjusted line yards metric. Should McKissick return, we'll have to consider this backfield more of a true committee, likely sapping all appeal. Taylor Heineke's 5.5 completed air yards per pass attempts ranks 26 in the league and is a viable indicator of the conservative nature of this offense overall this season. Terry McLaurin and Logan Thomas appeared set to be the only true near-every-down pass catchers this week as the team continues to reintegrate Curtis Samuel into the offense. Expect McLaurin to be joined by DeAndre Carter on the perimeter with Samuel eating into the snap rates of both Adam Humphreys in the slot and Carter on the perimeter. Cam Sims should operate as the wide receiver five with the team appearing to almost give up on the rookie Diami Brown after the bye. The Raiders' defense ranks middle of the pack in completion rate allowed, but ranks 6th in the league in yards allowed per completion at just 9.5. When we put the two together, it becomes fairly evident that Washington is highly likely to maintain a conservative approach for as long as they are allowed to do so. How Las Vegas will try to win There are a few things to consider when we try and get through how Las Vegas will try to win. 
The glaring thing to consider is the high blitz rates from Washington and a tight end stable that runs routes at an extremely low rate due to the struggles of the offensive line and protection, second lowest in the league behind only New England. Darren Waller has been in a route on only 64% of his snaps this season that came on pass plays, with tight end two Foster Moreau in a route on only 37% of his snaps that came on pass plays. The second thing we need to consider is the already low rush rates from the Raiders, 7th highest overall pass rate on the season at 63%, which, when aligned with the pass funnel nature of the Washington defense, should lead to a very bankable avenue of attack for the Raiders. Finally, the Raiders are a very barbell offense, scoring a massive 32 points per game in their 6 victories and only 13 points per game in their 5 defeats. As such, keep an eye on expected ownership here, particularly with the pass game, as quarterback Derek Carr has surpassed 300 yards passing in each Raider win this season, and failed to do so in each Raider loss. The Raiders average a middle-of-the-pack 63.5 offensive plays per game, but the 8th fewest rush attempts per game, 23.6, primarily due to a largely ineffective run game. The Raiders rank 18th in adjusted line yards, but they rank 26th in running back yards per carry. 27th in second-level yards, and 28th in power success rate. The matchup with the football team should be considered one of the league's most pass-funnel in nature, 7th in DVOA against the rush and 30th against the pass, leading to a poor 4.06 net-adjusted line yards metric. Josh Jacobs has been operating in the prototypical lead-back role, typically handling 60-65% to of the offensive snaps en route to 16.3 running-back opportunities per game over his nine healthy games. The pass game usage has also been a bit more bankable of late, with 4.6 targets per game over the previous five contests. Expect some combination of Kenyon Drake and Jalen Richard to fill change of pace and obvious pass-down duties. A large chunk of the ceiling from this pass offense hinges on the status of recent addition Deshaun Jackson, who has upped his involvement each of the past three weeks, 17%, 34%, and 48% snap rates. His downfield chops have been a welcome sight for the Raiders after the loss of Dex Monatrix Velociraptor. Yeah, that guy. During the almost two full games played without Darren Waller this season, Hunter Renfro has led the team in both targets and production, catching 15 of 17 targets for 192 yards and no scores. Against the heavy zone defense of the football team, look for Renfro to once again be the preferred target here. Zay Jones and Brian Edwards are two bodies on the field for most of the game, but that's about all they've been over their careers thus far. I would tentatively expect Deshaun Jackson's snap rate to increase further if he's able to suit up at the direct expense of these two perimeter threats. What I will say, though, is that both Edwards and Jones' profiles line up well with what Washington has struggled with this season through the air. Likeliest Game Flow a large part of this game revolves around how successful the Raiders can be through the air, yielding a wide range of potential game flows. As in, since we can be fairly certain that the Raiders will primarily attack through the air here, and since Derek Carr ranks fourth in the league in total intended air yards, and since Washington allows 8.4 defensive ADOT at time of target, everything from the Raiders' side of the ball lines up to create an environment that harbors deep passing. Deep passing can either generate splash plays that eat up chunk yardage all at once, or lead to incompletions and stalled drives. Since Washington largely relies on their opponents to dictate their level of aggression due to the team playing all season with a backup signal caller, we have to approach this game through the lens of an extremely wide range of potential outcomes as far as overall game environment and game flow goes. 
The game flow that has the largest percentage chance of transpiring, considering our exploration of this game, is for Washington to start with a conservative mindset and inflated rush rates while the Raiders look to pick their spots through the deep passing and underneath passing games. The biggest holes in Washington's heavy zone defense are the deep perimeter and shallow underneath, leading to Deshaun Jackson, if healthy, and Hunter Renfro as the two likeliest to benefit from Darren Waller's absence the most. The Jaguars at the Rams kick off Sunday, December 5th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 48.0. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 Jacksonville has not scored 20 points in a game on American soil since September. These are the two fastest-paced offenses in the league in terms of seconds per play. The Jaguars are at a significant personnel disadvantage on both sides of the ball. The Rams are much more incentivized to be aggressive and push this game offensively than a team with their record would normally be in a matchup like this so late in the season. How Jacksonville will try to win Jacksonville is going to need to score points to have a chance in this game, something they've struggled with for the entire season. They've only scored 20 points once since September, and that was in their London game against the Dolphins. The Jaguars are going to have a lot of trouble handling the Rams' defensive front, as the Rams boast PFF's number one graded unit in both rush defense and pass rush. The Jaguars have a decent offensive line, but this will be their toughest test of the season on all fronts, especially in a game where they are likely to be forced to be aggressive offensively. The Rams don't really have a weakness defensively, as many of their struggles recently have been caused by offensive turnovers and just playing very crisp, efficient offenses in the Packers and the 49ers. The Jaguars don't have an elite scheme or personnel setting up a long day for them offensively. The Rams, incredibly, have six defensive players whose PFF grade is in the top 10 at their respective positions. If there was a spot for Jacksonville to attack, it would be the Rams' cornerbacks not named Jalen Ramsey. How Los Angeles will try to win The Rams are the most pass-heavy team in the league since Week 7, throwing at a situation-neutral rate of 68%. They are now facing the 32nd-ranked DVOA pass defense in the league, who is traveling across the country. There was news prior to last week's games that Matthew Stafford is dealing with a lot of injuries, but the Rams were still aggressive through the air, and this matchup calls for more of the same. The Rams have PFF's number one graded offensive line in terms of pass blocking, so they should have no issues giving Stafford a clean pocket and keeping him upright. Given the Rams' recent struggles and the fact that they are still finding their groove in a post-Robert Woods world, they should be very aggressive and pass-heavy early in the game. The Rams started the season 7-1 before losing their last three games by an average of almost 14 points per game. If ever there was a classic get-right spot, this is it. The Rams need to get their swagger back to make a run down the stretch of this season and get some momentum heading into the playoffs. The urgency here will be very apparent. There is an obvious concern for the game script to get out of hand and the Rams to pack things in early, but there should be plenty of volume and efficiency through the passing game on the way up. The running game should also have success and be carried along for the ride due to how easily the Rams are likely to be able to move the ball. The Rams are likely to play with tempo in their home stadium against an inferior opponent as they look to right the ship. Likeliest Game Flow The Rams should have offensive success early and often in this game, while the Jaguars will likely struggle until the game is well in hand for Los Angeles. 
The Jaguars were able to pull an upset on the Bills in a similar spot a few weeks ago, but that game was in Jacksonville, and the issue the Bills had was their complete inability to run the ball, and the Jaguars sold out to stop the pass without having to pay for it. The Rams' running scheme is one of the best in the league, however, and the Jaguars really won't have that option in this game. The Jaguars are a team that plays with the fastest pace in the league, and while that is influenced by their frequently negative game scripts, we should be expecting much of the same here. For two to three quarters, we should see very high play volume as the Rams love to play fast, especially at home, and the Jaguars won't have much of a choice once they fall behind. If, somehow, the Jaguars score some points and or get out to an early lead, that would only serve to push the Rams even more. And if Jacksonville tried to sit on the ball, it would just be a lot of three-and-out type of possessions. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Ravens at the Steelers. Kick off Sunday, December 5th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44.0. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 Both of these teams are coming off dreadful offensive performances in Week 12. The Ravens have scored over 20 points only once in their last five games, but the Steelers have given up 41 points in each of the last two weeks. Pittsburgh's man-heavy scheme opens them up to quarterback scrambling, but their familiarity with a division rival may alter their strategy. Pittsburgh's defensive approach will have a big impact on how this game is likely to play out. How Baltimore will try to win Baltimore's pass rate this year has risen substantially from past seasons, even though it is still slightly below league average. The Ravens' litany of injuries to their running backs and best receiving core of Lamar Jackson's career likely has a lot to do with this. Pittsburgh's defense has struggled in recent weeks, but their familiarity with Baltimore's tendencies and philosophy should help them put up more of a fight this week. Pittsburgh has given up running success to Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow in recent weeks, and their blitz, man-heavy scheme is usually very prone to struggling with those types of players. However, in Week 1, the Steelers were able to upset the Bills by changing their approach and playing more zone coverage, and containing Josh Allen in the pocket. Lamar struggled last week to the tune of four interceptions against a zone-heavy Cleveland team that was able to consistently apply pressure to him. I would expect Baltimore to have a very balanced approach this week and to keep things conservative when throwing to avoid another turnover-prone performance from Lamar. They really don't have a lot to be afraid of from the Steelers' offense, and turnovers are probably the only way Pittsburgh can control and or win this game, which makes it unlikely the Ravens come out firing and trying to attack aggressively against a defense that has appeared beatable lately. How Pittsburgh will try to win The Ravens' pass defense has been shaky at times this season, but their biggest issues have come against more efficient and explosive offenses. Unfortunately for Pittsburgh, they don't fit that description. Ben Roethlisberger appears to be truly on his last leg, and he's dealing with an injury to his throwing shoulder slash peck. The Steelers are unlikely to be able to attack downfield, and if they do, the Ravens' pass defense can be an opportunistic bunch against weak-armed quarterbacks. Baltimore's run defense is one of the best in the league, and the Steelers have been unable to run with any consistency or efficiency all year which also makes it very unlikely that Pittsburgh would be able to simply put the ball in Najee Harris's belly and run their way to victory. 
The combination of the lack of an explosive pass game and an inefficient running game leaves the Steelers to use a familiar attack of high-volume short-area passing, hoping to get their playmakers in space to make plays after the catch. Unfortunately, this strategy will be pretty clear to the Ravens as well, and they should be prepared for it, especially against a familiar division rival. This strategy does have some potential upside, however, as the Ravens had four of their top five cornerbacks limited or absent from Wednesday's practice. If the Ravens' secondary is thinned out, Deontay Johnson and Chase Claypool could be able to break some tackles and make some backups look silly after the catch. Likeliest Game Flow This game's projected total paints a pretty accurate picture of the likeliest game flow here. Baltimore is the team most likely to take the lead and or make explosive plays, but if they generate a lead, that would just make their offense even more difficult for a one-dimensional Steelers offense while allowing Baltimore to lean extremely run-heavy and simply try to get out quickly with a victory. The Steelers lack the firepower to take a lead, which is the scenario that would likely be necessary for the game flow to take off by forcing Baltimore to be aggressive with their weapons and play calling. A low-scoring game where the Steelers stay somewhat competitive but never really threaten to win is the most likely scenario, with Baltimore's offense protecting the ball throughout the game and their defense teeing off on Ben in the fourth quarter when he's forced to get more aggressive. The 49ers at the Seahawks kick off Sunday, December 5th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45.5. Game Overview by M. Johnson 86 Debo Samuel's injury will force San Francisco to make some changes in offensive approach or personnel usage. Seattle's public perception is at an all-time low after another bad performance in Week 12, this time on national TV. These teams are on very different trajectories than they were the first time they met in a Week 4 Seahawks victory. Pace and play volume will be big issues to consider when evaluating this game from a fantasy perspective. How San Francisco will try to win The loss of Debo Samuel really can't be understated for this 49ers offense. Samuel's presence has provided San Francisco with most of their explosive plays, and he draws so much defensive attention, which opens up running lanes for their backs and gives Jimmy Garoppolo extra time and space to make decisions and throws. While there isn't a one-for-one replacement for Samuel's unique talents, Kyle Shanahan is very creative and they will find new, creative ways to stress defenses. The way they use Debo stretches defenses horizontally and gives an added dimension in the short areas for defenses to account for. While Brandon Ayuk does not match Debo's build and will likely not be given the direct handoffs, the 49ers have shown a willingness to use him in that multidimensional role last year when Debo was out. They used him often on jet sweeps, reverses, and bubble screens that serve the same purpose as Debo's diverse role. Seattle has given up a lot of fantasy points to running backs this season, but they do have PFF's number three graded run defense, while also ranking well in some other defensive metrics such as DVOA. That being said, the 49ers had a lot of success on the ground in the first matchup between these teams, and that was with Trey Sermon acting as the lead back and with Debo Samuel playing almost exclusively out wide. San Francisco runs the ball at the second highest situation neutral rate in the league, and after seeing Antonio Gibson and J.D. McKissick have success on Monday night, they are unlikely to be scared away from their preferred method of attack. 
when the 49ers do pass, it is likely to be primarily off-play action and misdirection-type plays that get the Seahawks out of position and attack in short to intermediate areas of the field. How Seattle Will Try to Win Much has been made by many Seahawks fans and onlookers about Pete Carroll's insistence on being a run-first team, but the reality is that this Seattle offense just struggles to move the ball in general. Their running game has been extremely poor this season without Chris Carson, and that, along with Russell Wilson's finger injury, has made them easy to defend and very vanilla. The result is inefficient offense, long third downs, and short drives. Over their last three games since Wilson returned, the Seahawks have scored only 28 total points. San Francisco is much easier to attack through the air than on the ground, and Seattle has actually thrown the ball at the second-highest situation neutral rate in the league since returning from their bye. The Seahawks have a nearly non-existent running game and a tough matchup on the ground, making it likely they will be forced to throw at a high rate again here. The best thing Seattle could probably do would be increasing their tempo and maybe using some no-huddle to get in a rhythm and get defenses on their heels. That seems like a big ask of Pete Carroll, however, at this point in the season, it would make a lot of sense for them to try some new things. This was also supposedly a reason OC Shane Waldron was brought in this offseason, to increase their offensive tempo. Likeliest Game Flow The Seahawks are dead last in the league in plays per game, averaging a ridiculously low 54.1 plays. On the opposite side of the ball, San Francisco runs the ball at a rate bested only by the Eagles. The 49ers are not an overly aggressive team offensively, and the Seahawks play more of a bend-but-don't-break offense, which will likely lead to a lot of drawn-out San Francisco drives that bleed the clock. This game is likely to stay close throughout, with neither team likely to have an explosive offensive approach that forces the other team out of their comfort zone. At the end of the day, efficiency will be king, and the 49ers are by far the more efficient team so far this season. They are likely to dictate game flow and have a substantial edge in total plays and offensive production. Yeah.